Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Today, this Sunday, the fourth Sunday in Lent, has so many themes to draw for, draw from. It is um, rich in different concepts and ideas all flowing together and intermingling, and it's just a beautiful Sunday, beautiful color-wise, as you can see the vestments uh, for the priest and for the uh, chalice are a rose color. That's because the first word of the introit today, which usually, if you're wanting to know kind of what the theme of a Sunday is, look at the introit, and that gives you a sense of what the Sunday is going to be about. The first word of the introit today is rejoice, letare in Latin. Uh, so this has been known as Laetare Sunday or Rejoice Sunday. Because we are rejoicing, we, uh, in our joy, lighten the somber color of violet for the day to a soft, almost maternal rose. And I say maternal uh, advisedly because in the introit, who is being called to rejoice? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, i.e. the church. Because... She is our mother, and all those who belong to her are called to rejoice in her today. Now, in the epistle reading, St. Paul is describing the difference between Sarah and Hagar in the uh, Old Testament, and how the son of Hagar was the son not of trust and faith, but of wanting to do things our own way. Isaac, however, was the son of the much, much older woman who didn't think that she would ever bear, and her son Isaac was the son of the promise, the one that God said to wait for, trust me on, this is the one uh, that will carry on your line and the promise that I'm giving you. And St. Paul draws a a correlation between the old system in Jerusalem with Hagar, that is, the people of God no longer trusting in God, but trying to do their own thing. And so the fruit that they have is now one that ends in non-promise. They're doing their own thing. This is not um, what I'm wanting you to do, God is telling them. But the new Jerusalem is the child of the promise. The new Jerusalem is the true Jerusalem. In the old Jerusalem, there was a temple a temple that was built in one city for all of the nation of Israel to come to in order to offer sacrifice and meet with their God, Yahweh. This wasn't a a unique thing for them. People all over the world had their own temples and their own gods, and they offered sacrifice in order to show their gods that hey, uh, we think you're worth something and we want to demonstrate this by giving you things that are important to us and things that matter to us, mostly livestock, because that's literally our livelihood. We uh, get milk from them, we eat them, we can trade them. It's basically our currency. It's the most valuable thing we have. And so when we offer these sacrifices, either of our crops or our livestock, it means that we're giving up our livelihood to you, to demonstrate that you're worth something. And usually because we also think that 
you know, what we need, more livestock, more crops, uh, well-being is going to come from you. And people have had this intuition all across the world, and they know that there are spiritual beings in this world that have power and some kind of authority, and uh, they had this intuition that a lot of them tended to be localized or attached to people groups. And the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, affirm this. I mean, it talks about the gods of the nations all the time, but none of them were the god of all of creation. These were gods that were basically angelic beings that were, you know, supposed to be taken care of and, and ruling over wisely as deputies of the one God, all these people groups. But in the story of the Old Testament, again and again, we see that that's not what was going on. These angelic beings who were supposed to be deputized and uh, given authority by God actually wanted their own authority. They wanted to take the worship and the honor and the sacrifices of all those people. And so they became bad angelic beings. They became spiritual powers that were now not for God, but against God. And so God gave all these other nations to all these spiritual powers because they were all mirroring each other in their wickedness. But he chose one people group out of all the world, and he said, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will teach you how to be the kind of creatures that learn how to worship the true and living God according to his ways. Instead of offering your children up wickedly, you will uh, dedicate your children to me and I will give them back to you. Um, and, and I will multiply you greatly and you will become a great people. And this was the promise. But the children that Yahweh picked to be his children did a bad job at it, almost predictably, right? And so they failed. Almost immediately they were brought out of bondage in Egypt. And the first thing they did when God calls Moses up to uh, receive, you know, the pattern of life for the people before he even gets back to them within the span of 40 days. They have gone off and, and decided we're going to do things our own way. We'll make a, a, an image of our God, Yahweh, and uh, we'll decide that he looks like a golden calf. And so we'll bow down and worship this. And so they just off on the wrong foot to begin with. And then there was some forgiveness, some, all right, let's try this again over and over, but 40 years in the desert, they're about to enter the promised land, and Moses' last words to the people are, look, if you trust God, he will bless you and take care of you, and you will be great, but you're not going to. <laughs> this was not uh, a pep rally by any means. This was Moses being realistic and telling the people, you are going to screw up as soon as you get into the land, and that's what they did. And the rest of the story is the narrative of Israel screwing up, God having mercy up to a point until he finally lets them give in to their wickedness and going off and trying to worship other gods and bring them in. And, and they couldn't trust God alone. They just couldn't do it. And so first their kingdom splits up. We heard about that in the reading. Uh, David's the king of all Israel. His own son rebels against him. And, you know, uh, the kingdom splits up between Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Then Israel gets uh, conquered and taken off into exile Judah, the southern kingdom, eventually gets conquered and taken off into exile. A few of them come back. They try to rebuild the temple. But none of them had ever had any guarantee after coming back from their exile that the presence of God was dwelling in the temple in the same way that it had before. When they first dedicated the temple, the presence of God filled it 
in the form of smoke and, and this giant cloud of glory that descended so the priests couldn't even minister. And they knew that the presence of Yahweh, their God, was there. But after the exile, when heathens came in and ransacked the city and tore the temple down, when they came back and rebuilt it, that didn't happen again. But they did their best. They continued on. They offered the sacrifices that they were supposed to offer. And centuries passed. Now, eventually, uh, prophets got word from God that he would come back to them, that his presence would dwell with them. And so the nation of Israel, basically Judah, that's all, all that was left, and so they were called uh, Jews, the tribe of Judah, they were waiting for the presence of Yahweh to return. And then a man called Jesus starts walking around, preaching, and doing some miracles. Now, Israel knew what preachers were like. They had itinerant, wandering preachers. They had rabbis and teachers. And they even had wonder-working and miracle workers occasionally. But this guy was different than all of those because he said things like, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Something that could only take place at the temple in the presence of God. He did things like multiplying food, um, something only God does in the world, right? That's not, that's not something that just happens. He heals people. He, um, he talks about himself like he is the presence of Yahweh returned to the people. And so when he is put to death because the rulers and the people who trusted in their own system couldn't handle the presence of Yahweh coming to them in a way that they hadn't expected, he rises again, and his followers who have seen him and believed in him now begin to understand that the temple that was there as the one and only place where people could meet Yahweh and offer sacrifice was now no longer the only place where that could happen. At the moment that Jesus Christ accomplished the work of being the perfect and true human being, the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from not just the rest of the temple, but basically the whole world, was torn in two. Meaning that the presence of Yahweh, A, is not there, we can see. But B, it's not meant to be anymore. Don't hold on to that idea anymore, because now that temple can be anywhere. The reason for that is because Jerusalem is no longer a locality, but a reality. Jerusalem is the church of God spread throughout all of the world, meaning that wherever the church is, there the temple in Jerusalem can be. And there the presence of Yahweh can be experienced. Now, we already knew Jesus uh, told people this, and, and the rabbis before Jesus knew that if a few people gathered together and just prayed, then Yahweh's presence was kind of there with them in some way or another, right? But not the presence that you can touch and encounter. This was the spiritual presence of Yahweh there dwelling in their hearts or meeting with them in some way, teaching them, bringing them into, his, um, into conformity with him, but not in the truest, most complete way. The way that we come into full conformity and meet fully with God now is through the sacraments of his church. So every one of us ought to be, like Jesus said, 
meeting together with a few, or even going to our closets and praying secretly. And we meet God there. Every one of us ought to be spending time daily, putting ourselves in the presence of God and saying, I'm here. Where are you? I'm waiting on you. Please come and speak to me. We have that ability to pray and to meet with God. But when we come into this temple, this, this is the new place where that curtain was. This is the new meeting place of heaven and earth where God's presence is given to us fully. And so all of us, though we can meet with God, we're doing that out in the world. But when we come here, we're coming to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as Isaiah said, um, and where the introit gets its verses from today, Jerusalem is like a mother to us. God is our father. Jerusalem, the church, is our mother. And from our mother, we are fed, we are consoled, we are comforted, we are taught. All things that mothers do for children, that's what happens here in the church in Jerusalem. So, as the church spreads into the world and encounters people still worshiping the gods in whatever form or fashion that might be now, still making sacrifices of themselves to whatever they find important, be that their time and money to things that um, console them in ways that may or may not be very healthy, we make our sacrifice here. It's not a big sacrifice. We aren't asked to give up our uh, livelihoods where, you know, I mean, it's, it's still a good thing to do that. That's, that's not wrong. But if we have very little, it doesn't matter because we can give five small loaves and two little fishes and God can multiply it a thousand fold, five thousand fold. We come here with just a little bread and wine and we receive back the very body and blood of Jesus. If we give just a little bit of our hearts to God, he will give himself fully to us. And then we can give more, and then he gives more, and it's reciprocal, and it goes on and on. This is not, this is not a magic formula. This is relational. This is self-offering, us to God, God to us. So keep that in mind this morning. Know that we are in the temple in Jerusalem today, here in Atlanta, Georgia, off Bolton Road. This is the Jerusalem temple. Not the one that was there 2,000 years ago and torn down by the Romans. That one didn't matter anymore because it wasn't the one. That Jerusalem is not the place. Now every place is Jerusalem. And every temple in Jerusalem is where the presence of Yahweh meets us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God is Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.